0: Hi, I'm Keegan, this is GM Talks. I am joined with Quill and Chris from our Discord server. If you ever want to try and join these conversations, we periodically ask the Discord server if they want to jump in. You'll find that information down in the description of either the podcast or the YouTube video. Uh, Today's topic is we're going to be talking about introducing new players to systems and settings. And so I just want to welcome Chris and Quill to to the show.
1: Glad to be here. Hello. Hello
0: uh, Quill's been on our server bringing up some interesting ideas such as evil silver fangs and Chris runs the Silver Page podcast. I will also link that down below. So anyway, we, we were having a bit of a conversation before we started and, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, I just wanted to know, I, I, I'll get us started, um... Since both of you said that you have a healthy backlog of werewolf books, have uh, either of you read the revised edition Storyteller's Handbook? Yes. For,
2: for uh, apocalypse, yeah. I haven't read that particular book.
1: Yes, is... I've, I've read. The, I've read the revised. I actually have a copy of it as a PDF somewhere.
0: Oh man, <laughs> it is easily my favorite book in the whole the whole line. Easily, and this is actually where I drew a lot of my inspiration on how to. Uh, Bring in new tip, new players. Mm. I do have
2: a similar book for Forsaken. It was a first edition of the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide, which I think by the sound of it covers a lot of the same stuff, just ways you can rework the setting to introduce new players.
1: Yeah. No, I, I remember that one, too, from running a Forsaken LARP for two years. I, I've... Uh, full disclosure, I've been a gamer. I've been a tabletop gamer since I was six years old, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm 39 I, now. I came to it at the ripe old age of 18, and uh, have continued on till oh god, I'm almost 33. I'm ancient.
1: The baby in <laughs> the group. I don't know. I,
2: I'm actually younger than both of you. I won't say how old, but
1: ah, but, I feel uh... now. I feel old.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, then I really will refrain from giving my age. But I've been going at it uh, since. I think I was about nine, and I distinctly remember pl- trying to pl- uh, playing a section of an old Buck Rogers RPG with my dad.
1: Oof, Oof. that that's taking me back. I actually started on the old TSR system by Mar uh, the Marvel superhero system by TSR. Wow, ah. the percentile system, which I'll be honest, <laughs> I think that is probably the simplest system to teach somebody how to play a role
0: playing game.
2: Oh yeah, uh, no, that's a it's a pretty basic one, along with the, the storytelling dice pool i yeah.
0: started on uh i started on 3.5 D and not yeah not bad not bad but uh oh. so i try to not be like a mechanics junkie and probability stuff i can because my work requires a lot of math or mm-hmm. at least like technical thinking and i've uh for i can't go into details because ndas but i've done play tests for several things and i'm like well, if you do this, this is your percentage chance of succeeding, and if we're doing this all the time, this is really low and people are going to be frustrated. If you optimize like this, boom! This is how much damage you're doing. Woof! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I got into it teaching myself RPGs, and so I've gotten very good at picking up systems uh, pretty rapidly, just because of a lot of practice. Oh, I
1: mean... Um, be- I don't think there's any wrong way to get into role-playing games because it's collective storytelling. It's about sitting down with a bunch of people and telling a really good story.
0: Yeah. no, oh, I agree with that. Um, but uh, back to the werewolf book real quick. Um, yeah. Right. To go, to, back to, to our get topic. To, yeah, back to our topic. is um, What I do now if, with that book is I get my players to sp- spend all their attributes, abilities, things like that, um they pick their auspice and their breed obviously. We run a quick prelude and then I start them before they choose their tribe. So their tribe is empty, they have no gifts, and for certain backgrounds, they don't pick those backgrounds if they have other backgrounds they want I'll allow it, but they don't have to spend all their backgrounds in uh in character creation yet either. And through play of learning the system, learning the lore, at the same rate that their characters are, as they're being taught by other werewolves, they're being brought on like uh, baby, like chaperone spirit missions, being taught what it's like to be wolves and things like that. If they're Hamid born, or one hilarious moment where we had a lupus trying to learn how to drive in a parking lot to spend their oh, bonus God, points. It's... Yeah, they they spend their bonus points through play. Then they do their spirit quest to find their totem. And then after that, we do a slight time skip. If they have any unspent bonus points, that's when they spend them. And mm-hmm. that can last, I think, with the current group for the podcast, which was well before we started recording, almost a year before we started recording, actually. they uh, That lasted, I think, like three or four sessions. And so they got really into their character and they learned a lot about the lore without me going, taking out that tome that is the 20th anniversary book and going, who wants to borrow it this weekend?
2: <laughs> not. And not the, uh, does my character know this? I don't know. Make me an intelligence check.
0: Yeah. I, I don't really enjoy that usually unless it's like somewhat obscure. I still do it on occasion because sometimes it's like in the air where it's a coin flip, but most of the time it's just like, yeah, you know it, yeah, you don't, but because now they've run through it and they've actually learned it in character and they took notes and they have all, they have this kind mm-hmm. of basis of a sept that they're all involved with, they know who to go to for information and yeah. they know who to work with.
2: Yeah, I've tossed around ideas. on doing something similar to that with Forsaken, just have everyone start as the equivalent, as the, uh, Ghost Wolves, the setting's equivalent to Apocalypse's uh, Ronin. Like, you don't know anything. You've been a werewolf for maybe two weeks. You know that you can shapeshift. You know that silver hurts like hell. And you know you're seeing things now. So, here's what's going on in your little in the city block you've claimed as a territory. Let's figure this out.
1: That's a good way to do it. Um, One of the games I ran, I actually had them... It was hilarious because it was a couple of people I was friends with in college. But they were investing... They were quote-unquote ghost hunters where one of them was actually just like a charlatan psychic and they start investigating this asylum and then real supernatural stuff starts happening <laughs> <laughs> and they're learning that's about it. the world of darkness starting as mortals
0: i've done that with the uh, chronicles, oh, yeah. Darkno- chronicles of darkness before it's yeah. great that's one of my favorite ways of doing that for that setting and, oh yeah uh, that's
2: one of those you can do like the all guardsmen party bit where they showed up expecting they were going to play a completely different game, and then halfway through the session, they turn into werewolves. Or yes. they get jumped by the sabat and turned.
0: Yep. That is exactly what happened. And then
2: happened. An after, and then yeah, after I've the done session, a... you tell them to fill in their templates.
1: I have yep. done a shovelhead game before. It was great. It was great because yeah. they were like, wait, what happened? What just happened? Why is my character being buried? What? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> uh, those are fun games
0: oh yeah we did a uh we did a... i used to do this when i was younger and had more time is like during holidays and have friends over and we'd run rpgs like as one shots and one actually turned into like a a two shot uh someone on the server i can't remember his name he he came up with a great term a revolver game up to six shots <laughs> yeah which is uh... a great great term but uh they were a bunch of um like low level gang members and it was just a, like, almost Three Stooges-esque running into a popular store here in town, shooting up the place, pissing off the vampire that owned it, and him hunting them through the night as they all had, like, one dot in intelligence going, It's vampires! You idiot vampires! Don't exist! And it's a Nosferatu. he goes, What do you call that? A monster! <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I, uh... I ran a brief shovelhead two shot, and one of them, who funnily, ironically enough, I decided was a gangrel because I, I didn't, I assigned them their clans in private. Spent the entire session convinced that she was a werewolf.
1: Oh my god, that is oh. that is just so good. That is so good, <laughs> so so good. Like, out
2: of character, they all knew they were playing vampire, but in character, she was utterly convinced she was a werewolf, and she hadn't even done anything werewolf esque.
0: That's fantastic. (laughs) Um, But
1: one of the things I will have to say about introducing characters to new systems, it also really depends on the setting. Like, when you brought up the topic earlier today, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about Pathfinder, where that one, it's a high fantasy setting, so, you know, standard elves and all that stuff. But one of the things that I think is important in that one is... Where does the game take place on Galorian? Because if you have the inner sea guide, it gives you a decent little like one page, one and a half page blurb on each of the nations. Mm. So like if you're starting a game in, you know, around Sandpoint, then you're gonna want that page. If you're starting on the island nation of Absalon, you just let the players read that so they get an idea of what the culture's like and all that stuff. So it's not a really heavy info dump because you're not getting into like all the deities and everything. But, you know, again, it's, I think, I think really how you handle the information is also setting dependent.
0: That's, that's yeah, fair. Definitely. If, if you can get it to one, if you can get it onto one page, I think you, that's fair. Um, for me, though, because I homebrew a lot of my games and I get, like, entirely too intricate with it, I focus on one area and then they explore the rest of the world and then learn it. And I try I, I try my hardest to make sure that players learn information at about the same rate as their character would. That way they retain it better and oh. there's a precedent for it. Oh, agreed, yeah, yeah. agreed.
2: I did a Pathfinder campaign, probably one of my longest running campaigns, which is kind of depressing, that uh, it used a a homebrew setting. And I admit I was horrifically rushed on, on the setting, but the idea was every member of the party was a member of a mercenary company from a foreign country. And they were sent to this one city that ended up serving as their base of operations. So they had no context for the culture and for the society. So they had their backstories, but they were still, by their nature, outsiders when they are in the area they were arrived in.
0: Okay. That's a good way of doing it.
2: So they just kind of wandered around the city and got to know some people. Which would have been nice if I was a better DM at the time, and wasn't freaking out because of how little preparation I had. I think they all had fun. They became infatuated with a, a seedy tavern I gave them called The Smiling Unicorn. I say I gave it to them. They showed up because they wanted to go to the roughest bar in town. And that's how my brain works. Nice. They rented a back room to torture people.
0: <sighs> oh, man. Um, but yeah, I've done that. Um, and I, as we talked earlier, too, in terms of game systems, I think for me, personally, Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu is the easiest game to get people into for a couple of reasons. Uh, One character creation, even with large groups, I don't think has ever gone past an hour. And I've run it with uh, with like four or five people making characters at the same time. I don't think I've ever breached an hour in character creation for that game. Mm. And two is just because it's a modern setting or 1920s setting, and we have a kind of intrinsic idea of what that setting would look like as just normal. It's very easy to create sort of a backstory without any sort of information, actually. And in fact, in terms of Call of Cthulhu, yeah, it's actually... With... Yeah, it's better if everyone doesn't know anything, right?
2: Yeah, and everyone's going in with some kind of context for what's normal.
0: Yeah, exactly. You don't, and then...
2: spend, you don't have to spend hours sitting down trying to figure out what constitutes a normal backstory in this world.
0: Yes, exactly. And then on top of that, it's just... Mm-hmm. The skill system because everyone understands percentages, and I think the best part about Seventh Edition is even attribute checks now are just percentages. It's all percentage based, and which that's nice. Yeah, and it's just people intrinsically know what that is, right? Like,
2: right. Yeah, it's your roll. You got to beat the number. Yep. And if you beat the if if you get below the number, you you succeed. It's, that's like the Palladium system with Rifts and Heroes Unlimited, which I can speak from experience is the hardest I've ever had to work to try and introduce people to a setting.
1: Yeah, Palladium games are hard, but I will say Heroes Unlimited is probably one of the funner ones once you get them past that learning curve. Yeah,
2: Except I made the stupid mistake of setting them in Century Station.
1: Uh, I've been there. And level half been- the place.
2: I, I couldn't just give them like a normal city. I couldn't just give them like Chicago. No, I had to put them in Century Station.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now I leveled half the city with my with my character because the DM let me have a crew service weapon for my power armor as my sidearm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they busted up a, a bank robbery and they mulched all the bank robbers, because they were all punching way above... These were just normal guys with alien rifles.
0: Uh, And I think
2: every single one of them had super strength. Oh, Had some means of enhancing their strength to the point where they were doing the entirety of a normal human's health and SDC in one punch.
1: Yeah, hey, Quill, I was doing 1D6 times 10 MDC with a shot from the rifle. Jeez.
0: So yeah, heroes I guess, unlimited
2: is oh, fine for introducing people. I'm sorry, yeah. but heroes unlimited is fine for introducing people. Rifts is a nightmare.
0: <laughs> Fun. Oh so, yeah. I guess that brings a good question then for us to talk about. How do you uh, do? You have any special tricks for how to introduce people into really complex settings? Um. Honestly, it's. For me, the trick is ultimately
1: just taking the time to break it down for them. Uh, For example, I actually, in my online gaming group, I got, like, nine people. Eight of them had never played Pathfinder before, and I was running the game. So I was running, like, a nine-man game with only one other experienced player at the table. (laughs) And character creation took a couple of days, but...
2: Yeah, I bet.
1: (laughs) And but now, like, two of the guys who had never played before are running games, and I'm in one of them.
0: Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. It with comp with the more complex systems, you just have to have the patience to take the time to break stuff down. And Mm -hmm. when like the first combat we had, I literally had it. Literally took probably two or three times longer than a normal combat should have in Pathfinder because I was walking them through their sheets and what all their characters could do beyond what they had read they could do, because they were still getting used to it.
2: Right. Yeah, and with Heroes Unlimited, that's why I included the uh, the bank heist against perfectly normal guys with alien guns, so they could learn the action economy without having to uh, worry about all their opponents doing all this extra stuff.
0: Okay. I, um... It was just,
2: guy goes pew. <laughs>
0: I, uh, I had to introduce a bunch of new people to uh, Exalted 2nd Edition a couple years ago.
2: Sorry. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh, Exalted is one of my favorite settings, and I have a real love-hate relationship with 2nd Edition system. Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, because I'm right there with you.
0: I, um, but I started them off as mortals, just so that they could get the regular die-rolling part down, mm-hmm. how willpower worked, how virtues worked. And then they exalted part way and they were just familiar with their village, which was homebrewed. They were taking a trading caravan to an actual established setting city so that they could learn more about the world. And they passed through a shadow land to get there, which led to a chunk of dialogue that is has been restated by myself and the players involved and now players who were never there. Uh, <laughs> Because it was so perfect. They're like, we have to get out of here by night. And one guy's like a fierce warrior type. And he's like, why? We can stand against anything. When night comes, the hungry ghosts arrive. And they will try and feed on our flesh. I fear we don't have enough in the caravan. And he just goes, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And one of the other players immediately in the background goes, oh, that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Yeah, the, uh... A running joke with our group now for anyone who joins is if it's like okay uh that doesn't sound too bad well that sounds poor to bad <laughs> just comes up all the time now
2: yeah that uh that vampire game i was running three teenagers through a vampire for the first time the only role-playing game they'd ever really played for any length of time was D, fifth edition specifically um, so i taught. I taught them how the rules worked. I taught them how the dice rolls worked. And they were doing fine. It it ended with the Nosferatu wearing a face mask made of toilet paper because they had enough sense to realize she couldn't go outside.
0: Oh, God.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then they had to pull the face mask off because the uh, the gang girl accidentally sliced open a a Paul Blart mall cop. Wondering why these kids are wandering around town in the middle of the night. So they used the toilet paper to try and stop him from bleeding to death.
0: Oh, God.
2: He wasn't quite a mall cop, he was just a very fat, unlucky police officer that night.
0: Oh, jeez.
2: But uh, before he got sliced open, the gangrel jumped out of the dumpster they were trying to hide from him in, yelling, and I quote, I'm queen of the rats, and then flung a live rat she found at him. (laughs) To save the Nosferatu who was currently trying to wrestle her way out of his grip, and succeeded. I got uh, to tell them how to make a ranged weapons check because of a rat.
0: There's a uh, there's an NPC in our werewolf game called Howlinking, and he actually was used in my introductory stuff to try and teach the players how regeneration works. So he's like, <laughs> ship to your glabro form. And they're like, are what? Look in your mind's eye. And they're like, okay. And none of them had primal <laughs> urge, of course. So one of them botches <laughs> and he just starts beating them with a lead pipe. <laughs> And then one starts going, Jesus Christ, dude. And they're in Glabro, and he swings the pipe, breaks their leg, and he's like, Focus on healing. What? Focus on healing! <laughs> and so it like really like hit them hard with like how savage and like brutal werewolves are. And right. how like, and he's like, you can do this for anything but fire my claws or silver. Now fucking do it! And they're like, I'm trying! Hits him in the other leg with a silver pipe, and is like, try harder!
2: Werewolf harder!
0: Yeah.
1: That's werewolf for you. Um, <laughs> Actually, probably one of the funnest things was, actually in that Pathfinder game I was talking about, uh, one of the players, she had never really played any tabletop or anything, and she knocked a succubus to perfect zero hit dice. A summoned succubus to perfect zero hit dice. Which wow. doesn't them. You have to knock them below their hit points. <laughs> she ended up capturing a succubus for the local church.
2: Fantastic. why not? Just walk in and go up to Father O'Reilly. Look what I did.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> but Like, yeah, no, it was one of those fights where, like... She,
0: do you uh do you guys use any uh cultural touchstones to like try and do shorthand for certain aspects of games? Uh what do you mean? Like uh you're like, "Hey, it's like blank like Um it looks like and then you bring up a pop culture reference of some kind or a book or something like sometimes, that. Sometimes
2: sometimes depending on the situation, other times I prefer to stick with the uh, I just give like, a brief description of the thing like in a Pathfinder game, with, I had none of them had played Pathfinder, so I had them fighting kobolds. And I just briefly described a kobold without ever using the word kobold. Okay. Just until they figured out what it was, and then from that point on, I referred to it as a kobold.
1: I do something similar in the setting, because there's so many settings there. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the games that was one of the hardest to get somebody into had to be Seventh C.
0: Really?
2: That's like uh that's a yeah. pirate game, right?
1: It's a pirate game, but the thing that really threw them was the fact that only one of the other players at the table spoke the language they had.
2: Uh so they uh... couldn't talk to each other. Only yeah. two members of the party could communicate with each other at a given yeah. time.
1: But that's one of the things about 7th C is it's very, very for the time period it's set in which is the golden age of piracy in a fantasy setting not mm-hmm. everybody would speak all the languages like and if you were not a noble you you probably didn't even know what the guy in the next village was actually speaking because the dialect shifts
2: right
0: it makes yeah. sense so yeah i did a uh, a little little like touch for something where uh, there was a halfling like community in one of the kingdoms i ran for a pathfinder game And when I was a halfling, I always that of that particular nation, they spoke very rapidly. And someone finally went, yo, what's what's up with you speaking like a 100 miles an hour? And the halfling went, much like us, all of our words are short, your words are too long. And so sentences take forever. So we got to speak really fast. Good. I, I like that.
1: <laughs> um I think for me the touchstones I use because I am a filmmaker and a scriptwriter is I try and make it visual through words. Mm-hmm. I try to use contextual words for like when someone's undergoing their first change since all of us have done werewolf in one form or another. You know, I I give them that visceral feeling of how their body would feel as it's shape-shifting, as the frenzy takes hold. And then they black out.
0: Nice. I like that one. A uh, big one I do as a uh, a transition from new players to old player, uh new players to more experienced players in our game is... at the beginning, I was very visceral about the... Uh, the... Fomori. And... The and like every little detail about every Fumori they ever came across as the game went on, I just described them a little less because they became a little more normal. Yeah,
2: that's, that's a cool trick. Became either what they became less detailed or your players just became desensitized to them.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I got less detailed in my descriptions because the characters, after running into so many Fumori, they're not going to focus. I what I also do is um when I start off is I focus on the human element of the Famori a lot right like the they... the personal suffering <laughs> and mm-hmm. then it, they become more and more like enemies as the players feel like they're more and more warriors of Gaia and they're they're clearly shutting that aspect out
2: they're ignoring the human aspect these are just things that need to die now
0: Yep on that note one of the things
1: I do especially with new players who happen to play my favorite tribe the children of gaia is i always try to bring in a little bit of edge of humanity no matter how often they've run into something like mm. for a second like uh one time at where they where it was a bunch of new players who had been just going through a bunch of femori and there was a child of gaia in the pack and the child of gaia like is about to deliver this death blow to this enemy who had been spewing this acidic vomit on everybody, and he looks into the eyes and can just see the absolute human terror in the eyes.
2: Yeah, that can be a thing to do when, especially when you're actively making it a story element that your players are, that your characters are getting uh, numb to uh, all of this, is give them that that occasional punch in the gut to remind them of what they remind them of what's happening yep
0: and i do things like that on occasion um like i will occasionally sprinkle in humanity again just to give them a jolt and a reminder after they've been so desensitized
2: yeah maybe even like uh on that idea like occasionally have your character make a degeneration roll if you're in world of darkness when they just start like casually joking about fighting Famori. just suggest that maybe they're starting to be they're starting to lose their way a little bit because they're uh Treating these things that used to be people as nothing more than obstacles to be cleared in a, the most over-the-top fashion they can think of.
0: I think it's a good way of doing it. Just you, you, you desensitize them, and then you just bring it back, and you give them that kind of tonal whip, whiplash to make them think about how much they've changed throughout a chronicle or a a, um, a campaign, whatever you want to call it.
2: Yeah. Especially if they don't have like an NPC in their backstory that they haven't interacted with in a while that you can just have them stumble across.
1: Um, another way to get people used to a setting is I do like a lot of the can shots. Because it's, here's here's your character already pre-generated, here's a mm. set story, let's go.
0: Mm. That's fair. Um, it's, you know... With that... Uh... I kind of uh, like that about the uh, the Modiphius Conan game because it's designed to be episodic, so you don't have to have too much of a backstory or anything like that. It's you're from this area. It's like Egypt, but not. And <laughs> go. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This is where you. This is where you from? Wizard bad. Go kill.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Unless you play a wizard and you're just like, oh god. Wizardry's so powerful, but if you fail a wizard roll, you, get... uh... you get you get hosed. <laughs> it's bad. It makes,
1: it makes paradox look like a freaking punch, like a punch with a you know
0: feather pillow. Because in a in Conan, it's uh it's a roll low system with a die pool with a die mm. pool that's between usually two to five and. If you got to roll under your skill plus attribute, and if you roll under what's your focus, you get two successes on that die. You have a difficulty of how many successes you need. But if you roll a 20, you get a complication. And the thing is, is that you can succeed a roll and still get a complication. So if you roll like four right. dice, you get five successes on hitting your guy, but you still roll a 20. You might lodge your sword in like their shoulder and you let go and now they're so, your sword's like sticking in them and you're you're weaponless and you gotta grab another one or something like that. But with sorcery, right. any failed dice, or any failed die is a complication. And, uh. a, and a 20 is two complications.
2: Truly like blow w- yourself up. Like wild magic on steroids.
0: Yep, and complications yep. are not inherently damaging to your person, but they can destroy things like equipment and things like that that are Relatively transient in Conan.
2: Right. Enough of an inconvenience to make the wizard thankful for every success.
0: Yeah, and think before they uh, they do anything, because some spells that were ridiculous, like there's one where if you get five successes on your wizard roll, you stop the person's heart, it ignores all, so- all armor soak, and you just crush <laughs> their heart, and you can almost insta-kill something, because it's got something called the Savage moniker on it, which means uh, how Conan works is you have your vigor track and your actual wound track. Mm-hmm. Um, once vigor is completely empty, you take a wound. If you take five points of vigor damage in a single hit, you take a wound. And if you get a combination of the two, you get two wounds. And mm-hmm. there's this tag that is, if you cause a wound with this attack you get an extra one for every wound you cause. So if you do three wounds, you have insta-killed that person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I haven't with, played but I've looked at the book, and yeah, it looks pretty It looks pretty brutal.
0: It's, yeah. it's very fluid, though. And the nice thing, too, is you can have armor on, and if you don't want a wound penalty, because you roll randomly to see where you hit on someone, so if there's no armor there, then they get hit. So if they're not wearing a helmet, there's no soak there. But if they're wearing full plate and you hit him in the chest, there's plenty of soak. But if that soak is not enough to stop you from getting a wound, what you can do is you take the vigor damage and then you sacrifice the plate and you say that the plate has been destroyed in a way that prevented the wound from happening. But that particular body part is no longer armored. Oh, I just thought of an old system that
1: if you can find it, it's probably the easy one of the easiest ones to get in get people into, and it's actually a Palladiums game. Really? It's called really? Tune. You literally create oh, a cartoon... It's called Tune. You literally create a cartoon character. Oh. Mm. And instead of dying, you get knocked out. Okay. <laughs> so it's literally like playing like a Merry Melodies or a Looney Tunes character.
0: Mm. Pugmire has something like that. They yeah, have an to... extra rule set that's like some people are not comfortable with dogs dying, so you might just want to run with the they got knocked out trope. Also, this game is kind of meant <laughs> for children, so... Tune was
1: designed to be, too. It was supposed to be, like, for the under-16 crowd. Ah. Uh, right. It's... But it is a more simplified version of the Palladium rule set, and finding systems like that to introduce people is also something that I think is great. Oddly enough, one of the one of one of the games I think is great for getting people into RPGs is actually a board game.
2: Really? Betrayal. I just immediately thought of Dragon Strike.
1: <laughs> ah, no, Betrayal at the House on the Hill.
2: Ah, oh, have that because
1: one. It is a pseudo RPG game.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because you
1: get a little character disc that has attributes on it, and you can level those up as you explore this house and you find things out and there's a story element to it for each time you play it's a different story
0: now mm-hmm. that i've sense. actually
1: gotten a, that's how i've gotten a couple of my friends who were big board gamers who'd never played rpgs to play it was like we played that a couple times
0: i got a few yeah, people in with uh, mortals chronicles for that same reason because it's just simple easy pickup to play and once again just easy to grok right away
2: yeah I remember when I was a teenager, it was basically, if I was hanging out with my friends for any length of time, it was be, are you going to bring Dragon Strike with you? (laughs) And I basically ended up running it like a really simplistic game of D&D. It ended up with one instance where the elf was hiding under a table from a troll and lost his sword because he tried to stab the troll in the neck with it when he wasn't paying attention and got his sword bit in half. He spent the rest of the game with a fire poker as a replacement.
0: I mean,
1: if it works!
2: <laughs> Anytime we played after that, he insisted, do I still have the fire poker? Said, yes, you still have the fire poker.
0: one uh, I and found was difficult to get new people into was uh, some of the OSR games, especially um, Old School Essentials, which I love because it was it's basically just a retro clone of the old basic D&D set, um, mm-hmm. BX rules, but because there's just so many different kinds of die rolls, I learned real quick that new people, even though it's way more open-ended, so it's a lot easier for people to conceptually get certain things, the die rolls do not um, support that.
2: Yeah. I haven't had a chance to try it, but I've been uh, playing with the idea of introducing people who aren't uh, uh, used to uh, Warhammer 40k by playing only War, because then you're just a member of the army, and I just give them a standard generic infantry division to be a part of. They're just Bob and Jim, uh, Bob, Jim, and John Smith in the infantry experiencing all this for the first time.
1: That's a good way of doing it. For me, I think one of the hardest systems has to be Fading Suns.
0: Which one's Fading Suns? Um, it's, the best way I can describe
1: it, it's kind of a Dune knockoff. Okay. You, basically, Fading Suns takes place far in the future- For some reason, all the stars are going out at the same time. And nobody knows why.
0: Mm.
1: One of the theories by the church is God got pissed. But the thing is, is people can only travel between star systems through these gothic-looking gates. If you try and go outside of a star system, eldritch horrors eat you. (laughs) And it has multiple houses, um... There's, like, religious prohibitions against cybernetics and psionics, but, Mm. like, one of the houses is really heavy into cybernetics, so they're like, eh, another house has psionic warriors that, like, can
0: basically wreck anything.
2: So it's a case of, oh, you don't like this? Well, how about you come up here and make me stop?
0: I was gonna say, uh, it sounds like it's a case of one but Larry and Jihad, please. Yeah. (laughs) Um...
1: (laughs) And the other one has to, which, the other one for the RPG has to be BattleTech as well, like the original. Not, I haven't tried the new RPG, but the original BattleTech RPG. Okay. Because BattleTech is just so lore-heavy. It's so lore-dependent.
0: Yeah, uh, there was one I used. I got a couple people into RPGing with uh, the Star Wars Sagas edition.
2: Oh, that was good. The
0: uh, I had it so no one played a Jedi because Jedi are just so like they don't feel like Jedi in that edition in my mind because they are not that strong compared to everyone else. And then I had the revised edition where Jedi were ridiculous, and in that edition, it's everyone's a Jedi <laughs> <laughs> because whoever is not a Jedi is gonna feel bad. And that was a good way of getting people into the game, actually. We did a Clone Wars game that ended with Order 66. Nice. And I, and... Think, that's
1: the, I think that's the other thing, is finding RPGs that are based in settings that are already exist. Like, I've had a lot of... Like, the Fate system's kind of wonky to get people into, but I've gotten people into RPGs by running Dresden File games. Because, Dresden files. let's go!
2: Of course, it is always a concern when you're going into something with an established setting, is... you're you're almost guaranteed to have at least one guy who wants to mess with the story.
1: I'm fine with that.
0: Yeah. Like,
2: you have it, if you're taking the Star Wars example, there's the guy who wants to go dive-bomb the Death Star.
0: Yep. Uh, We had one guy who wanted to dive-bomb Palpatine and one player goes, I'll straight-up stop you. And he's like, why? And he goes, because I don't know he's a Sith.
2: Yeah, it makes no sense (laughs) for us to be doing this.
0: (laughs) Uh-huh. And... That, that was enough to deter him. Like The rest of the player base is just like, we'll stop you. <laughs> yeah, Makes no goddamn sense. The other one I got people into is, um, I used the Mutants and Masterminds DC Hero Universe RPG. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. And we did a it. Bat Family episode of, or session. <laughs> I should say session. We did a Bat Family session where we switched around some of the equipment, and so it was Nightwing as Batman when Batman had disappeared, like Red Hood, uh, Tim Drake Robin, and uh, Batgirl. And it was, of course, a Joker thing, because why wouldn't it be? Right. And, uh, no, I had one buddy. He was he was playing Damian Wayne, actually, but uh, we were playing it out, and I got him with a line from a comic that luckily none of them ever read, where uh, the Batman shows up and the Joker goes, you don't smell like a bat. You smell like a bird. I, <laughs> and it was uh, like, fuck.
1: No, you're bringing up the DC thing. Yeah, I almost killed Superman. <laughs> uh, I was playing... Um, we, our characters ended up getting transported into the Injustice universe. My character was the only sorcerer in the group. And I used transmutation to create about a one-inch thick layer of kryptonite that went out because I critical rolled twice in a row. (laughs) Back-to-back crits that stretched over fifty miles across the Bonneville Salt Flats.
2: Wow. Yeah. Oops.
1: (laughs) I was like, I was like, well, our our basically our whole character sitting there I used enhancement, and I enhanced his strength so he actually had a chance of fighting Superman fist-to-fist. And Then I'm like, I've got this small little chunk of kryptonite. Screw it. Let's go. (laughs) And then Superman falls out of the sky.
0: And I'm like, ooh. I I I go solo XP. I I, I had thought about having them go against uh, uh, Superman Prime. And (laughs) as ridiculous as all that is and not use the game stats use the actual comic book equivalent where he's the silver age superman so he just gets the power of context sensitive at times oh god
2: and punch punch reality in the face
0: yeah he punches reality so red hood comes back alive because his death got punched out of reality but him getting buried in his grave was not Uh, (laughs) and but one of my players is like, we'll just get kryptonite. And then I showed him the comic where Superman fights a doomsday where all of his spikes are kryptonite, and he's holding him back on. I'm going blind. It hurts. And he starts, like, cracking him and, like, lifting him into space. But I will win. And I'm like, please, go on with your arrogance.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, dude. Do try this. I, I want to top this scene. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. It's just like... Man, I can tell your only exposure to Superman was the old uh, Justice League cartoon series, and it shows. Superman yeah. suffered some major Wharf sin- syndrome in that series.
2: With the Warner Brothers one? Yeah. I actually really liked that. I think that oh, was my I, favorite per- uh, portrayal of Batman, but that's I, a different topic.
0: I liked the series. like, It's still one of my favorites of all time. But Superman does get done dirty in that oh, yeah. one because oh, yeah. he's he's Worf. They have to have the big scary guy, and to show how strong the enemy is, they have to hit the big scary guy and knock him down in one punch. Yeah. And that, Superman got that role in that series. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Though it did give us one of the greatest Superman speeches. Um, the world of cardboard. The world of cardboard. So good. Yeah. Also the one of... Uh, where they... Um, Did the Alan Moore comic where he lives in his perfect world with a son and he gives all of that up to rip the plant off of him. Mm -hmm. God There there was that one. I to me it had to be I'm not sure if it was the original
1: Justice League or if it was the the second series, but the Batman and Ace. The
0: moment with Batman and Ace on the swing set. That was unlimited, yeah. Yeah, So oh oh yeah but you you bring up people who grew up with that and you bring them the dcrp dc rpg they will where eat superman that is basically
2: you lose
0: yeah that oh, and, sure, and you, no. yeah superman has like 10 one true weaknesses one of them being magic
2: don't roll initiative roll new characters
0: yeah exactly but no it's a great that's that's a great way, and it's a recommendation I do for a lot of people. Who want to get their friends into RPGs? Is if they have the knowledge to pick up a system like that, that's already in an established universe. I mm-hmm. highly recommend they do that.
2: I don't know, one thing I was uh, I I remembered uh, from my own experience is if somebody wants, if you're playing Pathfinder and somebody wants to play a paladin, but they've never played anything like a paladin, mm-hmm. make sure they know ahead of time what they're getting into.
0: Yeah, don't be that dick DM. Man, like.
2: I didn't realize. I didn't. I thought I'd explained the concept of the Paladin's code of ethics enough. Uh, What I got was a suicidal Paladin because he couldn't. because he was upset that he couldn't keep killing the kobolds when they surrendered.
1: Ah.
2: Every fight started with the Paladin rushing, like the Ranger yelling, surrender! And the Paladin punching him in the face, saying, no, don't surrender!
0: Oh, man. Okay. Yeah i think 5e corrected a little bit of that thankfully where you can be a paladin that has a slightly different code of ethics
1: yeah and and pathfinder has so many paladin archetypes for first edition that like you can be a gray paladin sure you lose a bunch of stuff but you're not bound to the lawful good alignment
2: yeah i I did for the sake of ease because none of them had played pathfinder and frankly neither had i at the time i basically limited them to the basic classes the basic races and none of the archetypes mm-hmm. just so they could just so we could all get a handle on things
0: that's a good call i think you you, you definitely don't want analysis by paralysis mm-hmm. yeah. i did that uh, for a lot of new groups too
2: but yeah or- it, it made for a funny bit when we realized he was actively trying to kill his character <laughs> and we kept and we kept saving him I had to get literal divine intervention involved in order to save him in one instance.
1: Ah, so you nod wicked it. Got it.
2: I uh, I had the day de- I had the goddess of of battle and valor descend from on high while he lay there in a pool of his own blood and say it is not yet your time, my child, and hoist his soul back into his body.
0: Oh jeez.
2: Immediately in the next fight he threw himself in front of the boss to tank the biggest hit he could and keeled over oh god and then they healed him again
0: <laughs> when i was a young dumb dm who was like yeah just come on over we'll play D," and we had like a group of nine people
2: oh no uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yep yep i think i think everyone can say they have made that mistake once or twice in
2: their their dming careers i have not made that mistake
1: for me it wasn't a mistake. It was I had enough people who were just super excited. So I was like, okay, let's do
0: this. I'm gonna go nuts, but let's go.
2: <laughs> Twenty minutes in, what was I thinking?
0: Right, yeah. Every time. And combat took forever and you had to have such cause it was three point five. Like Oh yeah. I and so you had all this happening and combat took so long that people would just disengage and like have side conversations. And so I aimed a disintegration at the one cleric <laughs> and he got taken out and went, Greg's dead and all the side conversations were still going and someone goes, I'm sorry, what? Greg's dead. And that's when they all started like going silent and they're like, come again, Greg's dead, Greg. And then they all focused up for the rest of the fight.
2: That's the DM mic drop moments. Like, well, what now?
0: Mm-hmm. Do I
2: have your attention now? <laughs>
0: But, no, now I I cap out at groups of six. It's good to be practiced at groups of six, because when I go to cons and things like that, especially like Gen Con, they want bigger groups like that to play, which I I get.
2: I think the biggest I've ever run was five people, and that was a party in Pathfinder who rolled nothing but squishy spellcasters.
1: Uh, the tabletop, I, I cap at about six. LARP's a different story. Yeah, LARP's always a different story.
2: <laughs> yeah, I almost killed that spellcaster group with four goblins behind a palisade, and only two of the goblins had bows. Oh. It was sad. They were dragging the wounded around a corner, throwing what spells they still had at them.
0: <laughs> that's, that That's awesome, actually. I ran a 5e group, and... There was a hobgoblin there, so the goblins were using tactics where they cracked the door open, and they were shooting arrows through it, and one of them got mad and goes, You can't use k- tactics against me, Keegan! I'm dumb as hell! <laughs>
2: <laughs> At one point, they set the palisade on fire, and one of the sorcerers yells, I got it! And flings himself onto the fire to try and knock over no. the palisade. Oh no! So they have to drag God. him back by his ankles to safety while they while the one healer tries to patch him up. Oh, oh no! Man. He's on. Un- he's barely alive, yelling, "We can take him."
0: <laughs> I will They're say, say too, five E is way more spellcaster friendly than uh, Pathfinder was for new oh, players. Like
2: because you can use your cantrips. At- infinitely and i think every spellcasting class has at least one cantrip that can do damage
0: yeah there yeah. was that and uh i think the other one though is that it's instead like even prepared spellcasters, like the the wizard and things like that is you choose intelligence plus one i think or intelligence mod plus level or you something like that
2: spells and you get more but, spells a day than the pathfinder counterpart would.
0: yeah it, well in pathfinder technically rules is written is you have to plan out every spell slot as a wizard Mm -hmm. and that is not the case in 5e 5e it is you get this select amount of spells that you chose for the day and then you can dispense them in spell slots at your leisure which i think was a real good move for new players
2: yeah, every oh, yeah. T- in Pathfinder, every day when anytime the DM declares it's a new day, the wizard has to like, well, crap, and sit there with a spell book in silence for twenty minutes while he thinks of what he's going to need that day.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. I generally when I sit down before I build a spellcaster and ask the DM what sort of ecology we're gonna be in for spellcasting. That makes it easier. And that's the other thing about getting people into settings and systems is as the storyteller, unless you're completely brand new with everybody else, you should make sure that the new players are given context beforehand, making sure that they understand what
0: the heck they're getting into. Oh, sure, and I I, I agree with that. I just think think players trying to prepare a spell for every spell slot is either going to be tedious, or they're going to forget at some point. And then Mm -hmm. you gotta... And then eventually you either have to be the dick and enforce it because it's happened too many times or you lax up on it and the spellcaster's is a little more flexible, which, you know, however you need to do it for your group and what works best for your group. But it's just a something I've noticed and it's something that has been less than newbie friendly in the past. And so I, I like how a lot of games are... Uh, becoming more newbie-friendly. I think a lot of people mm. got mad at V5 for being a bit more newbie-friendly in terms of bare-bones setting, all, along with other things. Some some in my mind justified, some absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean the Sabbat can't overthrow the global government? Well, because that goes against the theme of the fucking game. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah. Balance, that's why.
1: Um. Because the other supernatural forces out there will come
0: and eat your face. It's not even that. A big theme of vampire is we have to remain secret or humanity outnumbers us.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's the entire shtick for all the old World of Darkness games is, (sighs) yeah, on pound for pound we're tougher than a human, but there's a lot of humans nowadays.
0: There's like three billion humans on the planet. We're a small minority. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I see people, like, mad about, it. it's like, the Sabat getting destroyed by the second Inquisition is impossible. i I'm like, eh, I disagree. But... I agree as well, because the Sabat have been dumb butts for years! Yeah, yeah
2: the Sabat exactly. The are kind of cackling, mustache-twirling idiots. That's... It's
0: like, kind man, of their thing. Like, man, they tried to, like, give them some nuance in Revised Edition, which I appreciated. And there's some themes, like, there that I'll heavily revise if I run a Sabat game. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is like the uncomfortable truth is, I'm real careful about who I invite to play in my uh, World of Darkness games. To some degree, I have made contests on this site to like, you know, get people into my games, and I haven't been burned yet. But, but I am playing with fi- fire because there are so many Edge Lords in the the World of Darkness fandom that it's it's like man. Oh, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Like, yeah,
2: definitely. I've been
0: part of uh, both
1: the Mind's Eye Society and One World by Night for a couple of decades now. Like, when you they're... have
2: darkness in the title of the setting, you're going to invite a lot of those people.
1: Yeah, um, I think one of the other things that has to be taken into consideration when trying to get new people in is their comfort level with the subject matter. Like, World of Darkness mm-hmm. get dark Mm -hmm. oh yeah obviously um in the werewolf warp i'm in a part of here in minneapolis my character is basically a child of gaia hardcore child of gaia i get told i am the gaiest gaian child of gaia that has ever gaied basically
2: you are the full you are basically the character description given in the rule book
1: pretty much yes jordan is that way yes And my character runs an actual women's abuse shelter Mm in-game. And other things. So, like, the storylines I bring players into with Jordan, I have to make sure they're okay with the ideas of these very horrible subject matters as a player when I'm bringing them along on these story arcs that are Jordan-centric.
2: Right. Yeah. And to an extent, some of that is, like, a... Covered by the when you all get together for the first time to actually agree to play the game, it's setting down the ground rules like yep. this is something we don't talk about.
0: Yep. We started yeah. our game. I think I want to say six, s- no, um, a year before uh, Consent and Gaming came out, and it, I, I used a lot of those practices for this game going into it because I sat down and I was like, before we make characters. We got to talk about what you do not want to see in this game, because I can and I do go very, very dark with it at times. I can go very dark with it. I have done sessions that involved such things as human trafficking. There is a side episode of the podcast right now that deals with that. And so I'm like, I need to know, what cannot happen on screen, what cannot be implied, what has to be ignored, Like, because we can get real dark, and I wrote that all down in a document, and if I ever onboard new players before they make characters... They get the document. I, they, yeah, I bring up the document, I go, these can't be discussed, what do you want to add to it? Yeah, because two words for you, Zamishi House. hmm Oh, boy. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the chemise are basically... Oh crap.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, if really, a Fianna, a Fiana, and their Metis child, how how Fianna do you want them to be around that Metis child? Because you're gonna be start playing with some real bad themes of like child abuse and things like that, potentially. Yeah. And yeah. you know, like you as a storyteller can even go, I'm not cool with these themes. Yeah. <laughs> And I think
1: that's, I think, to be honest, to me, like, the system doesn't matter so much as it does people's willingness to engage in the story, if that makes sense.
0: I I can agree with that to a a point. Uh, There are some systems where, like, I've taken the setting and removed it from the system because the system is just so bad. Or just not in my wheelhouse.
2: In my experience, as long as the system is functional... And isn't mind-bogglingly uh, like you don't need a spreadsheet in order to rem- keep track of what all roles you can make? Yeah. Then it's the only challenge that comes from bringing in a new player is bring is teaching is getting them into the story and the setting. Yeah, because like I said, I've run teenagers whose only experience with RPGs really was Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition through a, a brief uh, game of uh, Vampire: The Masquerade V twenty. And they were fairly close to the rules like I didn't I don't I definitely didn't get the frenzy rules down properly but that was my fault
0: yeah I, I I've gone through books before and there's been times when I've gone th- gone back to my werewolf books and gone oh holy shit I've been house ruling that for like a decade yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. whoops <laughs> Whoops. Um, as long as you're what consistent do you mean? that's it not works.
2: how that's supposed to work
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> As long as you're consistent, that's all that matters. Yep, yep. Um, but no, I think part of I think that's true, and that's why I do like a lot of uh, closer to the real world settings for people who are brand new. Like I said, with the, your Calicathulos or your Delta Greens or your Chronicles of Darkness mortals, or starting them off as just a week after their first change, werewolves, things like that, because then. Then the processing of the information and the story feels more organic, and you don't have to—you uh, don't even have to start with um, a one-page piece of homework. It's right there in the game, right?
2: You literally know nothing. You're in character. You literally know every just as much as you know out of character. Yes. Which is nothing.
0: Exactly.
2: It's like Werewolf the Apocalypse. What do you know? I'm War Good.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
2: yep. all you know in yep. character, too.
1: It's one of the things like I love about the LARP, the LARP when we actually get people who are brand new because we have den parents. We actually will
0: run them as cubs.
1: Yeah. And to me, that's fun. That's that's neat, watching them come into the game and learning as they go.
0: No, I agree. And uh, with us, too, we did that. And I actually let them, with my that system I was talking about earlier, spending background points, I said, you guys can spend Background points into pure breed, based on what you've said about your character. I will pick what your per, uh, your pure breed tribe is. If you choose a different tribe, those pure breed dots will be refunded instantly after you choose the tribe, and you will be able to spend them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I've always run it where
1: if you get adopted into another tribe, you just basically you have pure breed and it's of that tribe because. There is that caveat about the children of Gaia adopting everybody.
0: That's true. I what I do it as though is um, I run it as um, pure breed is how many times your ancestors chose to be in that tribe. So how many times did they choose to be this? Choose to be that. And with the silver fangs, it gets muddied because of the you always have to choose the silver fangs. Obviously, you,
2: you don't get an option.
0: Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I, I play with it that way. Um, and I like mixing I'd, I'd up probably, things like that.
2: With uh, pure breed, I'd probably take the route of they can uh, put it in at character creation, but as the storyteller, I tell, I determine what tribe they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, if and if they end up choosing to join a tribe other than the one that they're descended from, then that comes up. Like if you're a pure breed Fianna and you join, say, the Geta Fenris... You're probably going to have people making fun of you, not necessarily bullying you, but you're going to have a lot of Irish jokes at your expense.
0: I, I guess that I, I don't want to punish them for choices they made, especially coming into it. So, th- like, I might run that with more people who've done it before, and we do this method again. Mm. Um, but I like the idea of you know they have the fear breed; it's in the the past sort of thing, but they don't necessarily know. It's actually why uh, we have Cora because. On one side of her kinfolk family is Geta Fenris, and on the other side is Children of Gaia, and she was actually pretty torn on choosing, which is why uh when she went to the Sept Elder for her Garu name, uh he chose two hearts for her, because though she was a Geta Fenris, she would always belong to the children of Gaia because he always saw her compassion, and she always defaulted to him, the child of Gaia, as kind of a mentorish figure. Mm. That's key. that's sweet, right? Um, some a little background for anyone who also listens to the the Werewolf game here. My players don't listen to this, so I can like spoil shit like ten episodes from now.
2: <laughs> you say that, and then one of them is going to happen to listen to like, this specific podcast. Yeah, <laughs>
0: right. right. Like, um, I I've talked about the themes of like colonialization in our Werewolf game, like. And how I'm like, I keep hitting them over the head with it, but they never seem to get it. Now they're starting to figure it out. And I I think they figured it out on their own, but they might have listened to that episode where I was like, come on! <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Do you need me to draw you a map?
1: <laughs> the other thing about bringing new players in is finding the hook that interests them. Like,
0: right. um... Oh, Yeah. And but, I think that's before character creation. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, if nothing else, that's probably one of the most important aspects of the character creation, especially for, an, uh, for a new character. Even if you don't really have a backstory, just where did you come from and why are you adventuring are the yeah. two questions I'd ask.
1: I think it even goes to more basic than that. And I ask I ask the very simple question. What type of story do you want to tell? That's a good call.
0: I like that. that,
1: that is- first question I ask before we even get into character creation and building. it's We're running this in a high fantasy setting. I'm using Pathfinder. We're running this as a high fantasy game. What sort of story do you want to tell? And I've had, you know, I had one group of new players say they wanted something on an epic scale of the Lord of the Rings. Hey, Let's go. Want this? Cool. There's going to be, you know, and they ended up getting into these massive war and this massive fight and by the end of, it only lasted about six months, by the end of it, like, one of the characters died, like, everybody at the table, including me, just started crying.
0: Nice. Um, we had something where, I did, this was actually my very first werewolf game I ever ran, from end to end. And it was close to the apocalypse, and they had a, um, they had a member of older brothers, kind of a mentor to the whole pack, and he was the master of right and all that, and he, I've house ruled it differently for all future games because I think it's more dramatic. But in this one, it's if you lose gnosis, you're just uh, you're just disconnected from the spirit world. And he had to do on the eve of the apocalypse a rite that just destroyed all of his gnosis. And uh, we were at a friend's house and we had a fire pit, so we sat outside for the pure role playing because there was going to be no uh, die rolls. And we were talking mm-hmm. around the fire pit, and his vo- his name was Voice of a Thousand Spirits, and he was talking about it and how he felt disconnected from everything. And it all got quiet, and I went, I don't have a voice anymore. And I just heard all of them go, Ah! Ah! E- <laughs> it's, it's...
1: I think... And I think that's what will get people... Like, once you get them into a setting, if you can get those moments that just kind of grab them by the heart. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, I think for me... When I first started playing World of Darkness, it was actually in the LARP, um, and I was playing a Gangrel in a Camarilla city in San Francisco. I was like maybe four months out of boot camp from the Coast Guard, and I was came from the East Coast to the West Coast, so yeah. And I walked up to the Prince of the City and handed him three bumper stickers. <laughs> Absolutely batshit nuts toreador who i found out later had like seven derangements (laughs) (laughs) and i hand him three bumper stickers i like shiny objects and the other one was i leave bite marks and the third one was i have the power to destroy you and my character got his acknowledgement in the city just for doing that
2: nice (laughs) (laughs) because the toreador assumed it was it was a threat
0: because the prince thought it was hilarious. Oh, god! <laughs> um, I also have taught my players a basic thing called the uh, the Bilbo Baggins effect or the Bilbo Baggins um, choice, which is if the majority of the group wants to do one thing and you think your character wouldn't want to do that, just. Think of a way why, just why they could, like, invent a reason so that the story goes on, because it's no fun to be just separate from the group, and it's been a good way of describing that, because it's like, well, technically, if Bilbo followed his character that was established in the first two chapters, he would have stayed the fuck home.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, it's into the Campbell's hero's journey thing, you know, call to adventure and all that.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's, there's some to that. I like other things, but yeah, I, I, I've taught them that. They're like, hey, I don't want... And, and we negotiate behind the scenes, even for the podcast, where it's just like, hey, I'm not feeling this, but I really want to do this. I'm like, why don't we do this for a session or two from now? And then get what you want. Yeah, no, that's 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 how a lot of things should be. It should
1: be communication. Yeah. In yeah, and we- out of the game about where you want the direction to go. Because, like one of the pathfinder games i had started off as a traditional traditional high adventure game and then somehow or another like through the players talking with me because they you know because the underworld movies had come out and they didn't want to play world of darkness but they wanted to deal with vampire stuff it ended up becoming like this hellsing buffy the vampire cross adventure where they went to one of the nations that's just the nation that's all undead, and they start rampaging through (laughs) until they run
0: into the Banshee Queen. Okay. That's pretty cool. Um, And I had uh, one thing I learned, because I've played with more experienced people before, and this is kind of a lesson learned for me a while ago, is uh, we were doing a game and... The characters were a bit competitive here and there, but uh, what ended up happening was actually in a tabletop a lot of character bleed, and so that player left because they they realized that the bleed had happened. They didn't think they could get out of it because, and I picked up on it too late because I was asking how they how we can change the game to make them feel better things like that, and they mentioned the character that they were po- they were butting heads with's name, and said they were trying to stop me and i was like time out what happened and so now i've implemented like a debrief every session going did you feel like someone undercut you someone did this in character that you took personally so on and so forth
2: yeah it's a it's yeah. a, a good thing to do because i that first game with the suicidal paladin mm-hmm. uh the party consisted of a magus a paladin and a ranger And that uh, brief attempt ended with the Magus convincing the paladin to help him bushwhack the ranger because of some stupid decisions. Okay. And I basically had to come down as the fist of God and say, yeah, no, this ain't happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was basically the ranger had found a bunch of money because I was using a pre-made module. The ranger found a bunch of money and kept it a secret. Mm -hmm. And he made a bad decision that resulted in an NPC they were trying to save dying
1: hmm
2: And the so the Megas decided, yeah, no, this guy's gotta go. And convinced the Paladin through private messaging to help him.
1: Ow. Yeah. Yeah. And I do the same thing with the debrief. Like at the end of the werewolf game the werewolf tabletop game I'm running now, which has mostly new players. Um I always do like the last fifteen minutes of game as always, you know, we talk about like What you guys like, what you guys think it needs to be worked on, you know.
0: That's actually exactly what (laughs) I do.
1: (laughs) Favorite favorite moments of the night, and I think that's something that, you know, every game master should do. There should be, you should do a decompression. Like, it's one Mm -hmm. of the things that, since we've changed our the LARP because of the pandemic onto an online setting only through Discord, we've I miss going to afters. I miss going to you know a mom and pop restaurant after game, one of the little 24 hour diners that's open, going there after game and just having some food and just laughing my butt off for about an hour and a half with my friends.
0: Yeah. Mm. No, I hear you. That's definitely, that's
2: honestly one of the most fun parts of the game is just talking and making and laughing about all the weird stuff you did at in the middle of the session.
0: Yep. Yep, uh I clean that up from our recordings cuz it does happen a lot. Like we actually play like 3 hour sessions, but I cut out all the uh, questions, some of the die roll sounds um or people like doing math in their head so it's a little more uh dramatic. Yeah. Like not so much Extreme in the early wide. E- Yeah. You're you're on the early episodes still uh Chris, so you're still in my garbage phase. <laughs> it's garbage. I would say
1: that I... you guys learning how to do production. Like, come on! You've, oh, yeah. you've heard my podcast, and I'm not an audio guy.
0: I, I I I know. I just I went back and re-listened to my first episode. I'm like, we will never return here.
2: I guarantee <laughs> it is not bad. It is not as bad as my, fir- as uh, our first attempt at recording Pathfinder in, in the group that no longer meets. We made a mistake <laughs> with the audio that we didn't realize until it had been uh, recorded, until it had been edited. Uh-huh. But everyone except the guy recording had uh, their audio playing double because oh. someone had an echo.
0: Oh so man! We're like,
2: like two hours worth of footage because. Oh. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, we had one. We had one Blue Yeti mic around a table because I just I didn't have the audio experience to set up multiple things, and because of how it's set up, I'll probably keep running games through Discord even after COVID's done and I'm all vaccinated. Yay vaccine! Yeah, if you're listening to this and you're not getting a vaccine, I am in fact judging you. <laughs> I go and get my
1: second dose on uh, a week from tomorrow. Actually.
0: Nice, it just opened up for my, uh, for me, so... Uh, I'm a vet, so the VA
1: kind of changed their eligibility. Oh, got it, I was, yeah. I was in the Coast Guard for about five years, back in 2000. Gotcha. I had to take a bit of break from listening to the Werewolf Podcast, just because, holy crap, it's a slog at times. I, it's I, I, I understand. <laughs> no, no, it's good, it's just like, as
0: a Werewolf player, I'm like, oh god, guys, no. No, no <laughs> not the dumb, not the dumb. Uh, there were some good ones. There's some really good, uh, good bad decisions that drove the story forward. <laughs> the oil platform. The oil oh. platform. Fuck that! The, hey, See, that I set up a a one of my favorite podcasts. Rec- oh, okay.
2: Um, I have listened gave... to the podcast, so I have no context.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I turned uh werewolf into a survival horror. RPG when a rank five balefire shark jumped at them on an oil platform. It became,
1: oh, it became uh, the deep blue sea all over again. Yeah, <laughs> now
0: to Jackson to make it cool. <laughs> there was also a Yaren who is now our longest reoccurring uh, villain. He's still around, right. and he's still very yeah, mad the at mockery, them. Lockery breeds. Yep, he's mad at them for killing his friends.
1: Aw, poor Pentec minion.
0: It'd right. actually
2: be really funny to have to have them fighting some uh, legitimately evil antagonist, only for the, turn out the reason he's against them isn't because of a difference in ideology. No, you killed my friends. <laughs> I loved those people.
0: Like they have a difference in our... yeah, they have a difference in ideology, but that is the main reason he is hyper focused on them. You killed my friends.
2: I couldn't care less about what Pentex wants or what the worm wants. You killed my fish friend.
0: Yep. (laughs) It's, that's what it is. And so he shot a bazooka at them via, via helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always fun when you bring in the high explosives. Right. And, um, you're missing some good dialogue from, uh, kyle guards the low because in the latest one after they fought a bunch of spirals and one of them used burrow and they had the totem of green dragon his head popped out of the ground and he vomited balefire up his body which caused a scar and he's just like god i've got to be one of the ugliest fucking garu in the world i have so many fucking scars oh yeah Uh, good times
1: good times yeah, no, I'm going to try and get caught up over the next couple of, like, probably next month or so. Yeah, I, just... I mean,
0: there's a lot. I mean, there's there's well I'm over, like... like, 80 hours now, easily. Jeez. We're at episode 66 as of the time of this recording with Let several points. Au-
2: <laughs> Let me check my Audible app real quick. And, uh... <laughs> And uh, yes, I am actually reasonably certain that a, your podcast is now longer than the Bible. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I will... It's in here somewhere. <laughs> eventually,
1: again,
0: I will eventually. I understand. It's long. And I honestly don't find myself being happy with the audio quality until after they're in the secret underground base under DIA Airport. I will say like
1: I do enjoy your podcast like I find it fun and good time man
0: yeah I appreciate it I I changed some setting things around like the Garu are a little more cohesive in America just because the storm meter happened and that was their oh shit light bulb moment no that's that's fair like there's little changes here and there that I'm sure you've picked up on where it's like that's not the default setting and it's like I know
1: uh, but <laughs> your world. That oh, yeah. I don't critique what you're doing in your world. because oh, yeah. Because you are running yeah, no. a world that's tailored to how you think the world of darkness should be. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of running raw in most settings starting out. Mm-hmm. When you've got a bunch of new people who are learning it, you should run it as close to raw as possible so that they understand the mechanics and society and all that. The tabletop game I'm running, they actually rescued a bunch, uh, enough of the Croatin to reestablish the tribe in modern day. Nice. <laughs> because they're stuck in uh, an abscess created by a chunk of the eater of souls.
2: I, uh, I found a, uh, a few years ago, I found an online uh, te- uh, play by text group. I didn't uh, join. I just found it s- at some point. And they actively did not use Pentex because they felt Pentex was just too stupid and cartoony.
0: Okay. I I disagree I disagree with that premise, but to each their own.
2: I mean, I can understand where they're coming from. I'd still use Pentex, but mm-hmm.
0: I mean, but it's it's nice
1: having the villains, you know, when they realize that the global evil villains are, you know, not a cohesive whole, and they are kinda just kinda comfortable. Cartoony buffoons who are just, just because they have a metric butt ton of power.
2: The way I describe Pentex is, it's basically if you took a Captain Planet villain and put him in an R-rated series, but did not upgrade his mentality to match the new rating—only his methods.
0: Look, man, I, I, I'll 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 agree with you on that, but given how much news I've watched, I'm not so convinced that Captain Planet villains aren't realistic anymore. that's fair like like, they're so Captain Planet fucking and
1: (laughs) I mean that's the thing thing, is making sure you have that level of human in humanity in the system in the games like yeah like sure I had I had one game I was running for a bunch of new players years ago in 3.5 Where they got hired by this noble to wreck this other noble's house. Like, his his house in the nobile sense. Like, wreck their reputation, destroy their trade caravans and all this other stuff. And, you know, and yeah, sure, the other house was lawful evil. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because it makes you, you know... You're still going to follow the laws of the kingdom. You're just going to find every loophole possible. So they thought they were being like these great big heroes until they get arrested by the king's men because the guy who hired them, while he was, you know, neutral good, he was doing all this crap because of a slight at a banquet five years prior.
2: He wasn't doing it because these are terrible people. He was doing it because this guy didn't, uh, because this guy wore the same shoes he did.
1: No, 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 no. It was even worse than that. It's because the one family of lawful evil people had taken his favorite manservant from him, offered him better pay.
0: That's fantastic.
1: And that's the uh, whole
0: reason for the campaign. I ran a Primeval World of Thule uh, game a couple years ago, and it's easily one of my favorite D&D settings. It's also for Pathfinder, and it's basically in ancient Greenland that's covered in jungles. Atlantis sank a hundred years ago. In a few other hundred years, we're going to see the uh, rise of the Hyborian kingdoms and Conan. The Melibaneans from Elric just phase-shifted into this world, beat up a bunch of demons to establish a city as well, and there's a sentient glacier moving in. Like, it's, it's your st- bog-standard, like, kitchen sink, sword and sorcery uh, fantasy game with bonus rules on giving experience based on treasure so that it incentivizes players to hoard and spend treasure. Mm-hmm. And I had this uh, sorceress that they went up against, and as the game progressed, she became more and more Lovecraftian because I did her as an old... Um, an old god uh, sorcerer bloodline until she became a star spawn of Cthulhu at the end of the campaign. And they'd been tracking her throughout the game and they needed her location. So they went to an ancient temple with a sleeping lich, revived the lich, got the information, set him loose into the world so that they could finally get their vengeance on the sorcerer. And then I hear one of my players in the background going, Hans, are are we the baddies? Are we the baddies, Hans? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Pathfinder Party, who were composed of mercenaries, the, uh, they, uh, their first day in town, technically their second, they enslaved some random gang member who had been a part of the gang, They their first job was to break up. Uh-huh. I say they enslaved him. They went to the bar on their first day, the smiling unicorn. <laughs> and uh, the cavalier, who is a perpetual alcoholic, stands up and yells, all right, which one of you punks is a member of this gang? And I had no, I had not expected this, so I just have a random guy as a member of the gang stand up. Uh, I am. Challenge you to a drinking contest. <laughs> L- loser leaves town. He wins the contest and uh, they drag him uh, the Cavalier wins Mm -hmm. and as they're trying to intimidate information out of this random gang member they drag him into the back room of the the bar to torture him. They waterboard him with the booze which melted through the floor. They crack him in the groin with a bar stool and they're still not getting anything out of him because he doesn't know anything because I just invented him five minutes ago.
0: Oh, Jesus.
2: (laughs) Eventually he gets away. They bust up the gang's hideout, and they find out that one of the guys they didn't kill, but just left unconscious in the bathroom, was this guy. They're like, Steve, great to see you, buddy. Here's a mop. You work for us now. And they basically <laughs> used him as their personal assistant. Wow. And they're like, no, this is going to be great. We're going to teach Steve how to fight. We're going to send him back to base to get trained, and he's going to be a member of... It's going to be great. And I'm like... Fantastic. Fantastic. You told him he couldn't go home anymore. He lives in the barracks with you guys.
0: Uh, This is... We're going to call it here. Uh, I was going to call this new character creation and maybe not (laughs) ramblings, but uh, that turned out to be wishful thinking, so welcome to our next...
1: And war stories.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so so thank you to everyone who listened. Uh, We'll... Catch you in the next time I decide to do one of these. Until then, I'm Keegan. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Podbean, but you will never find me on Twitter. I find it a cesspool. Bye.